0: My name is Danny, I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege to share from the word today. The astute observer realizes that I am not Ben, decidedly less hair on stage. Um, He is right now um, vacationing, celebrating his anniversary with his family uh, for the week um, after uh, a long time uh, chugging along. And so uh, we're thankful for that, and I'm glad to open the word with you uh, this morning. But just to test how awake we all are this morning, I'd like to begin with a fill in the blank and feel free to respond audibly to a phrase that is probably familiar to you. Absolute power. Haha, <laughs> absolute power corrupts absolutely. But on a personal level, would it be more genuine to reply, absolute power would be totally awesome? Right? right? In all honesty, as we look at our behavior, isn't that a more fair rendering? Some of the words that we associate with power that may be a little more palatable to us are words like control, autonomy, freedom. We want to live in such a way that we're not beholden to anyone, right? Self-made men or women. We want to behave in a way, or we behave in a way that shows that we value few things more than control, autonomy, and ultimately, power. But we're faced with a problem when we have enough time to be quiet in our own heads and think about how little is actually under our control. If we were to tally it, it's a fairly short list. Here's an example or two. We can make sure that we have enrolled ourselves and maybe our family in health care, right? And make sure that we find the right doctor and pay the premiums. But we still have less control than we would like when it comes to receiving a clean bill of health. Or uh, even if we can say that we, we have our own piece to own with preventative care, right? What about those catastrophic things that seem to come out of nowhere? What about when we find a job that is Uh, both fulfilling and provides, and then we find that the market shifts significantly and we're laid off with little to show for it in our bank account. What about when somebody close to us, maybe a loved one or a friend who is making self-destructive decisions, is spinning out, and we just want to take the controls and pull them out of the tailspin? seems like the longer that we live, the more acutely we realize how little is truly within our power to control you're listening this sounds like a super encouraging sermon thus far and you wonder whether or not we we've switched and have gone to ecclesiastes i promise we're in the book of acts okay so if you got your bible open it up uh, to the book of acts chapter 12 or wake your phone up and open up that app however you choose to roll there's also bibles in the seat backs in front of you if you're there i can help you out it's on page 780 okay But before we jump in, let's take a minute uh, to pray uh, using the words of the psalmist David. Would you pray with me? Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in us, and lead us in the everlasting way. Amen. We've walked through a lot in the book of Acts, and so it may be helpful for us to kind of do a bit of review, right? The book of Acts is written by Luke, and it chronicles the life of the church after the resurrection of Jesus. And so we have the risen Savior hanging with his people, promising the Spirit, and also talking about the kingdom. After his ascension, the church is given the Spirit— who indwells believers and empowers them to be his witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Jerusalem as well. They face persecution along the way, which causes the church to fragment and disperse, further spreading the message, right? One of the chief persecutors, Saul, encounters Jesus and is transformed from a persecutor to one of the biggest advocates that the church has for the sake of the gospel. But persecution continues even to the highest halls of power. And that's where we find ourselves today. So, you got your finger there? Let's pop in. I'm in Mark. That's not as helpful. Acts, chapter 12. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized them, he put them in prison. He put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So as we've seen in the book of Acts and we're dealing with today, the church is experiencing persecution, harassment, right? seemingly from every angle, specifically from those wielding absolute power. And if you you were listening and you heard Herod, that Herod? Yes and no, right? So he's not that King Herod who asked for the death of all Jewish boys at the birth of Jesus but he is his grandson, so it runs in the family, right? And history tells us that that Herod sought the approval of his subjects, the Israelite people, right? And so he was a ruler who sought to live in accordance with all the laws and expectations of Jewish custom and culture. Josephus records for us about Herod Agrippa, who we're talking about, that he was exactly careful in the observance of the law of his country. He therefore kept himself entirely pure, nor did any day pass over his head without the appointed sacrifice. John Stott records that Herod was an Edomite, so he is a descendant of Esau. He's also someone that was raised in the culture and values of Rome. That would bring him two strikes against the religious leaders, and so Herod made sure to ingratiate himself with the people by following the laws. So as he killed one of the capital A Apostles in James and then pursued to do the same with Peter, he was ingratiating himself to many of the voices who cried out, crucify him. We recorded earlier in Luke's gospel. Verse 3 in Acts chapter 12 ratifies that for us. It says that when that they were pleased with the execution of James. So he doubles down and he picks up Peter and he's intending to put him before the people to try him and then ultimately to execute him for his crimes of being associated with Jesus. But the problem is that you can't have a trial or an execution during the Feast of Passover. And so he waits. Remember, Herod wants to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and so he waited. So in this first section of Acts chapter 12, we're told of a people-pleasing power who is vengefully seeking out the death of the church by cutting off its highest-ranking apostles, but we're also... Given a picture of a group of people that are juxtaposed with that absolute power, right? We're shown a group of Jesus followers who were lifting up the life of their friend to God in prayer. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts as well as the Gospel of Luke, wants us to know that the people gathered in secret and they're crying out with a sense of urgency. So this is not like a prayer meeting when you have a lot of awkward pauses and you're waiting to see who will break the ice and We whisper when we pray. The word that our English Bibles, most of them, translate as earnestly, literally means to stretch out. We're meant to get the picture of the early church fervently praying for and pleading with God. In fact, the same word pops up in Luke's account of Jesus' earnest prayer to the Father in the garden Let this cup pass. Let this suffering cease. Save our friend, our brother. Help us, Jesus. Have you ever cried out to God in desperation? When you sat in the waiting room of the ER, or as you held the hand of someone you loved in pain, when you looked and your checking account was overdrawn and the fridge is empty and the hunger still comes, Or when a decision that you made or an action that you took caused suffering for those that were close to you. In these moments and in these places, do we cry out in desperation. Let this cup pass, Father. Let the suffering cease. Save our friend, our brother. Help us, Jesus. Now this prayer vigil is taking place while Peter sleeps soundly chained between two Roman guards. My wife often marvels at my ability to fall asleep just about anywhere, like a narcoleptic superpower, right? And um, we'll go places. It doesn't matter if it's a new environment, if it's noisy, if it's too hot, anything. I can fall asleep. However, I haven't tested that theory um, while incarcerated, so (laughs) I'll keep you posted. But Peter sleeps while he's imprisoned, awaiting trial presided over by a power that absolutely is intending to execute him. He knows what's coming. His friend and fellow apostle James was executed and his head is next on the chopping block. But this isn't the first time that Peter has been incarcerated and specifically for his association with Jesus and it won't actually be the last either. After Peter's imprisonment, which we'll read today, the apostle Paul will suffer the same fate. And we see that both men possess a level of calm that's remarkable while locked up. John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, writes of that. It's beautiful that Paul sings hymns while Peter sleeps. Two examples of men who possessed peace that came from something outside of themselves. Try and put yourself in their shoes for a minute. How do they possess peace and ultimately hope in unjust and threatening circumstances. Is it because they listened to Carrie Underwood and they let Jesus take the wheel? I don't think so. I don't. You can ask him, but I don't think so. See, Peter, by this point, has come to understand that associating with Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, comes with suffering. He's not the only one who emphasizes this for us. Earlier in the Gospels, when James and John, the sons of thunder... One of the coolest nicknames in the Bible. We're calling shotgun, right? We're asking to sit in positions of authority and power. When Jesus comes into His kingdom, Jesus responds in a surprising way. First, they they call out to Jesus in a way that I wouldn't recommend, asking that he would he would do for them whatever it is that they would ask, right? Jesus responds graciously, asking them what is their request in Mark ten. And they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Their response, oh yes, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. James, who was martyred immediately before Peter was imprisoned, came to suffer for Jesus and his kingdom, just as he had said. Now, as we read this today, in order to make suffering more palatable, we might be tempted, to tell ourselves that these guys are capital-A apostles in the first century, and we are more of suffering cessationists, right? We live in different times. But the problem is, that is not the picture of following Jesus that, that the New Testament gives to us. A number of years back, my wife and I were suffering in a profound way, and it was as a direct result of seeking to follow Jesus in our lives. And I went to the first place in Scripture that I knew that I remembered dealt with suffering and trials and hardship. One of the first Bible studies that I did with um, a high school mentor of mine, we hopped into the book of James. And I started reading. James 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In the midst of suffering and desperation, where pain was acute, I read through the passage a number of times, and then prayed, asking that God would not allow me to waste this moment, but that He would use that which we were walking through to transform us more to His likeness. And I kept reading, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that place where the pain is acute, you're desperate. But I just kept reading, right, kind of like binge-watching each new chapter, right? And I found myself pretty quickly through the book of James. Don't be overly impressed because it's a fairly short book. But then I was in the pages of First Peter. First Peter was written by the subject of our study this morning. Listen to what he says on the subject of suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I was comforted by the idea that I'm not suffering by mistake. I'm not alone in this, and it's actually to be expected. It's counterintuitive, but the Spirit was ministering to me through those verses. Continued. Chapter 2, 1 Peter, for you've been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Beloved, brothers and sisters, we can read when we read that. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't attribute suffering that you receive for your own stupidity as Jesus's. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And he ends in this way in verse 19 of 1 Peter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. These words were not penned by someone who was just simply playing with these theological ideas and these theoretical pains. He wasn't blissfully naive. He instead was fully aware of the linkage between suffering, the life of a believer, and hope. So it's not that we suffer despite Jesus. We suffer because we follow Jesus. And as he writes, we hear the voice of a man who has entrusted his entire self to the Savior. He knows what's his to own and what he needs to give to the Lord. Not being driven by fear or factors that are outside of his control, he entrusts himself to God who is absolutely able to save despite the absolute power of King Herod, and it allows him to sleep in serenity. Before God called my family and I to be a part of this community, I had the privilege to serve at the Portland Rescue Mission. And I had the privilege to walk alongside men and women who were facing their addictions head on while learning to take up Jesus' yoke. And I became familiar with a prayer that I'm sure some people would know in this room, called The Serenity Prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr, right? A lot of people know the first bit, so if you know it, say it with me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, right? You can get window decals of that, right? You can get a token that you carry with you with that in your pocket. But a lot of people don't know Or I haven't studied the second part, the longer part of that prayer. Let me read it to you. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next Amen. See, Peter knew that he did not possess the power to grant his freedom, but he entrusted himself to the person who did. And freedom would not be afforded him easily. In fact, as we looked at the text, we realized that Herod gave Peter the maximum security treatment because his followers and Jesus himself had been known to escape from the strongest of bonds and graves. So... Herod doubled down in his assignment, four squadrons of four, 16 men on three-hour rotations. This goes beyond what the norm was, right? Generally speaking, there would be uh, a prisoner awaiting trial or execution who would be chained to one guard and then maybe have one or two outside of the cell. But he had 16 assigned to him, chained on either side by guards. Herod had contingencies for his contingencies, he was leaving nothing to chance, but best laid plans. Let's read back in Acts 12, verse 6, now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off. And an angel said to him, dress, your, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street. And immediately an angel, the angel left him. And Peter came to himself, and he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. That. Is bonkers. It's like a capital M miracle, right? What a moment for Peter and for his church. And so he stands in disbelief outside the prison gates through no effort of his own, aside from simply hearing the words of the angel and following along. Not unlike when I wake up my son far too early to put him in the car for a car trip, right? And I have to walk him through what it is to put your shoes on and head out, right? But this, isn't, this doesn't follow the blueprint for standard prison escapes that we know, right? Whether you've watched movies or read books, maybe The Count of Monte Cristo or Escape from Alcatraz or Shawshank Redemption. If you live in my house, it's Chicken Run, right? So that's our speed. But those stories build over the course of the narrative, right? And so they spend the majority of the time with the prisoners crafting and deliberating and obsessing over the details cobbling together the supplies that'll be necessary, and planning, and double-checking, because you've got one shot, so you make it good. And then, at the climax of the story, complete with close calls, we find out whether the escapees ended success or failure, which relies, again, on the ingenuity of the escapee and a bit of dumb luck, right? But did you notice that in Peter's jailbreak, neither of those were present? He is so unsuspecting that he came to only after he'd been sprung from the cell. He sleepwalked groggily past the guards and found himself outside the gates of the prison, which, by the way, opened on their own. So Peter did not obtain his freedom by utilizing his own power or ingenuity, but instead was freed by the one who wielded absolute power, King Jesus. We can spend so much time trying to make the right decisions, leverage the right resources, only to find that we're powerless to obtain our own freedom on our own efforts. Let's get back to the text, chapter 12. When he realized this, this being he was freed miraculously, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door on the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you were out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But he motioned to them, shh, to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Peter responds in a way that's reasonable, right? If any of us are ever imprisoned and there is a prayer vigil happening on our behalf, it'd be a really awesome time to show up at the place for the people who are praying for you. The only problem is that they hadn't anticipated him showing up at the prayer vigil. As I was reading N.T. Wright on this exchange in Scripture, he refers to this group of believers as the praying but hopeless church. That's a really interesting idea to me, right? These, were, these people were straining out to God, remember, in desperation for their brother. When things looked unmistakably bleak, and yet they didn't answer the door when the answer to their prayer showed up in the flesh. Picture it if you can. We have a group that Luke tells us has gathered together for the sole purpose of praying for Peter. They were earnest in their prayers. So these aren't people who are apathetic or simply going through the motions. Perhaps it isn't all that different than the motivation that leads the losing team. To call for the Hail Mary. Down by six. It's not football season yet, but go there with me, right? Down by six, no time left on the clock. You cross your fingers watching at home and hope that your quarterback has the arm. You know that it looks bleak, but what else you got? So the QB grips the laces and you throw up a prayer as you watch him let it fly. What other recourse did the people of God have? They found themselves impotent against a king wielding absolute power. It would take an act of God to free him. In the Gospel of John, there's a scene where the disciples are are witnessing the crowds disperse in droves after Jesus teaches about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And as the disciples themselves are reeling and questioning, things get awkwardly silent. And Jesus turns to the twelve as, the, as if they may be planning to leave and says, Are you going to leave? Peter, subject of our study this morning, replies saying, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to turn, Jesus? Jesus. Even in the most desperate places when we have lost hope, that does not mean that hope has lost us. At our darkest, He is still present with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Height nor depth nor anything else can pull us apart. Even in those most desperate spots where we have lost hope, He is with us. But this is a super important distinction. God's presence does not always mean liberation from the very present threat in our lives. After all, God was present with both James and Peter. James was executed. Peter was miraculously freed. So, if we are promised suffering as a result of our association with Jesus, and if we might end up with casualties in the battle, then what does it look like for us to succeed in the Christian life, it can no longer be to avoid pain. It can no longer be to power up and to win in our own efforts. Instead, can we fix our eyes on Jesus? Can we patiently endure suffering? Can we prayerfully trust in the desperate moments, understanding that the power comes not from us, but from Him? Listen to the Apostle Paul's encouragement to the churches in Corinth. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile jars of clay containing this great treasure, his light. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not given to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Think a bit about yourself and those around you as a clay pot, an earthenware vessel, right? There's kind of a beautiful simplicity to you but you are playing on purpose. And the purpose is so that as God's power in the Spirit shines through you through, for the glory of Jesus, it begins to become abundantly clear. That's not Mark's power. That's not Debbie's wisdom. It's not John's strength. That's not Lori's wherewithal. It is clearly something else. Jesus is meant to be seen in us, in you and I, even and especially when we're pressed for his sake. He is absolutely the absolute power. We don't have time to read it, but if you go back and you look at how chapter 12 ends, Herod's been bested. His contingency is shown faulty and his prisoners in the wind. His power is shown to be limited when compared to the might of the untamable, untame, untamable inexhaustible God. Yeah, we'll go with that. It's interesting, though, because he's now salty, he's wounded, and he actually calls for the prisoners or the prison guards to suffer the same fate of the prison escapee, and so they're executed. And the next scene we get to look in on, the people of Tyre and Sidon come to ask of the king. It's a time of famine, and King Herod's holding the cards. So these people are coming as a captive audience in desperation. So, He steps up to his kingly throne, puts on his royal garb, and he speaks to the needy audience. Luke paints this picture for us, but interestingly, Josephus goes a step further, recording that Herod wore a shimmery gown that caught the sun just right, that almost made him look like he was glowing. And the king, with absolute power, accepts the worship of the people. This is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of God. And he is snuffed out by the one who is the beginning and the end, we sang about. It's interesting that as we look at this text, the word strike is the same in both instances. Peter's struck. Herod's struck by the angel each time. But Peter's struck to be awakened to his freedom, while Herod's struck down and consumed by worms. You see, God intervenes on behalf of the one who seems powerless while thwarting the actions of the one who seemed to wield absolute power. As as Mackenzie read for us, Herod's life and power were fleeting like the grass which withers and the flower that fades. You and I, those who were fitted together to form the church, are held firmly in the grip of the one who wields absolute power and authority and dominion. In just a minute, we're gonna come together to the communion table, a place that reminds us of both profound suffering alongside unthwartable victory. But before we do that, let's take a minute to consider our heart's condition. You don't have to answer out loud, but try to do so honestly. Is there a place today that as you think and reflect, you have lost hope? What's that thing that you have tried desperately to solve and you've come up empty? What is the request that you have desperately prayed to God for and you still find yourself in sustained pain and grief? As the band comes up, I'm gonna give us a minute just to sit and reflect on those questions. May we, in this moment of silence, entrust ourselves to Jesus, who is the absolute power and our living hope. And then after we've had a chance to reflect on that, I'll close by praying the words of Peter to the church. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Jesus Christ. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. All power and glory to him forever. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.